0: A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with me on the program today. We are going to be talking about this absolutely infuriating out of New York State. Sandra Richardson, a registered nurse and a public health professional, has done some research on New York's mental health hygiene law, part of New York's SAFE Act. Uh, And the barriers that it is presenting to actually getting folks who would like mental health treatment uh, the opportunity to do so, as well as failing to address those folks who are in critical need of uh, mental health. And I got to tell you, Sandra's got an incredible uh, personal story that brought her uh, to this research. We're going to talk about it again with Sandra here in just one second. Before we do, though, Biden's America. It's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch. Maybe. Next time you go to the grocery store, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that is why you should call GoldCo, so you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 company of the year, with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver wall supplies last. And if you call them today... Qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855 412 3806 today. That's 855 412 3806. So we know that uh, Governor Kathy Hochul has expanded the use of the uh, state's extreme risk protection order, right? The, The red flag law in New York State. But that is not the only program out there that is stripping lawful gun owners of their right to keep and bear arms. And in fact, uh, the provision that's being used under the SAFE Act, I have to say, I think it's an even more egregious violation of our constitutional rights than the state's ERPO law. Sandra Richardson knows a thing or two about it and uh, very pleased that she could be with us on the program to talk about not only her personal story, but the research she's done to uh, try to document just how widespread these problems really are. Take a look and a listen. Sandra, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's so good talking with you today.
1: Yeah, it's it's good to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to have this conversation.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is important stuff, and the research that you've done, um, I, I think, is going to be eye opening for a lot of folks. So, uh, before we get into the actual research and the the problems with the Safe Act, I I, I want to ask just a little bit about your background. Um, you are a registered nurse, right? Uh, I've done this since the early '80s. Um, how did you get involved? How, how, how did you realize that there was a problem with the SAFE Act uh, and, you know, it creating these barriers to to mental health support for gun owners specifically?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think that it's it's really important to understand how I got into this because if it hadn't happened the way it happened, nobody would be looking at this that's my opinion right i don't think anybody would be looking at this so so my background yes i've been an rn since i graduated from college in 1982 and passed my state boards that summer um and i i, I wear many hats in life um i'm also a wife a mother a grandmother you know a colleague friends whatever but when my kids were getting close to graduating high school i said holy cow i need to go back to work full time what do i want to do with myself now cuz I honestly didn't want to go back full time into nursing. So I went back to school and got a master's degree in epidemiology, which is the study of population health. Okay, And with that degree from 2009 through June of this year, 2023, I worked as a research scientist for the New York State Department of Health. I am now retired. I retired in June of 2023, uh, which is why I didn't put out this um, this author preprint of my research until after I retired because it had zero to do with my employment wasn't done with their resources wasn't done on their time had nothing to do with it um and what i was doing what i was finding would not have been considered politically correct right so working for the government you you don't do things that are politically incorrect i'm retired now i can talk about it now right um so, how did I get into this and 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 who am I? Well, I'm a gun owner, okay? I own guns. I also happen to have a handgun permit in the state of New York. Um, when the pandemic hit in 2020, working in in the Department of Health as a person with a degree in epidemiology with the title of research scientist, I was part of the team that was Crunching all the data for the COVID numbers. Okay. I am a certified SaaS programmer and we do a lot of that statistical analysis stuff. And so we do a lot of data stuff. I was super stressed, right? We were working insane hours. Okay. If we hadn't been working from home, it never would have happened because, you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning is not a thing if you're commuting, right? Yeah. So, Really stressed, not just by work, but you know, it was there was a lot going on. Everybody has personal stuff going on in their lives. It was a really pretentious year for, you know, politics. Um, there was a whole lot of things. So I was super stressed. I went to talk to somebody about it. And being somebody from the healthcare arena, I trusted them. Well, there was my first mistake, <laughs> okay? Because, there is i have discovered an inherent bias um, that i was very naive to and so since i was open to say oh yeah i own guns and it's a great part of my life it's where family get together we go hunting together we target shoot together it's a it's a sharing it's a it's a good space in my life it is not a negative we are not violent people well whoever this person the person was and i know exactly who it was but Decided that since I owned guns and I was stressed, that I must be suicidal or homicide, and reported me under the Safe Acts Mental Hygiene Law 9.46. Okay. Didn't tell me. Didn't tell me. Okay. I found out that I was reported five weeks later when I got a call from the sheriff's department. Five weeks now, okay. Here I am at home going about my life. If if I had truly been suicidal or homicidal, which I was not right, five weeks would have been plenty of time to take care of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So problem with the law, that that's one of them. Um, So I I found out by a call from the sheriff's department, I'm like, yeah, I don't know who you are. I'm not just gonna, you know, I, I don't trust this phone call. I don't know that you're not a spammer calling me. So um, I waited to get the piece of paper in the mail that said, basically, turn over all your guns and, oh, by the way, all the guns in your house. So that means all your husband's guns, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see the fa- your face, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, fortunately, in conversation, we had a sympathetic ear. I ended up turning the, the one firearm that was listed on the order to show cause from the county court um and the rest were kept under lock and key and i did not hold those keys so that that was fine uh for that time but but i went to court and this all happened in uh end of april beginning of june i was notified by the end of august and i had to pay a lawyer thousands of dollars blah 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 the judge wrote in the conclusion of law that my rights were to be reinstated immediately, was the term on the piece of paper, and that, that these reports were only to be given deference um, if they weren't arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion. Right? So the report against me was, in fact, arbitrary, capricious, or an abuse of discretion,
2: according to a court of law. All right. Yeah.
1: So how did I get into this? That made me angry. <laughs> OK. And I wanted to know how many other people were similarly affected that that some activist healthcare provider was practicing beyond the scope of their license and reporting people falsely, putting them in a state database that is held by. None other than the New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services. Yes, right? Criminal Justice Database. Because you seek mental health care for something as simple as stress. Now, what if somebody was grieving and went to talk to somebody? What if somebody, I don't know, let's make stuff up. Was having marital difficulties, was, was having, you know, that raising kids and had, you know, wanted to go talk about parenting skills, whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to go talk to mental health care providers about these things in the state of New York? And those were the questions that came to me. And I said, we need to understand more about this and how this reporting is impacting the citizens of New York State. And yeah, those because- are the reasons that I dug into this. Okay. If it happened to me it's happening to lots of other people
0: a- absolutely i mean a- and again at least that would be the working theory right this is this has happened to you anecdotally this must be happening to other people and i gotta tell you i mean sandra as you're talking about your own experience here mm-hmm. um you know i'm just thinking about my own life i mean my wife has stage four cancer she's been fighting that for seven years um, mm-hmm. I lost my oldest son last April. He passed away. Mm-hmm. I have not sought treatment. You know, I've talked with friends and family, but there have been times where I've thought, man, maybe I do need to talk to somebody. And I don't live in New York. I live in Virginia. But I've had those same thoughts, right, about well, what am I opening myself up to mm-hmm. if I go and I talk to somebody? I don't have suicidal ideation, I don't have homicidal ideation, but like you, you know, I've got some stressors in my life. Uh, and there have been times where I thought, OK, maybe it would be good to talk to somebody. But these barriers that you talk about, if people know that, okay, if I go and talk to somebody about what's going on in my life, am I going to get that letter? Am I going to be treated like a criminal? Am I going to have to hire an attorney? Because Mm -hmm. again, some zealous or overzealous practitioner decides that the fact that I own a gun and I'm there in their office means that I'm a danger to myself or others. This Mm -hmm. is scary. So when you started looking at the numbers to see how widespread this problem was, what were you able to come up with in your initial research?
1: Oh, my gosh, it took me the better part of it. Well, it it took me a while actually to get sort of on my feet after the trauma of being reported and having to go to court. Okay, so that made things worse in terms of stress. (laughs) Um, It was very traumatic and don't know if I'll ever regain trust after that but um it took me the better part of a year to figure out where to find the data okay so with with my background in epidemiology and data analytics uh, I'm a data nerd I'm sorry I just am (laughs) and I don't know how typical that is in our realm here but that's where I'm coming from I'm a a retired public health professional that's a data nerd interested in individual and population health. So I started digging where is the data? How do we figure out how this is impacting the population? Right? It took me a long time. Um, I, I submitted multiple freedom of information requests to several different, you know, agencies, entities within the state of New York. And what I found was, there really isn't a lot of good tracking of the outcomes of these reports, okay? And that's something that I did not address in the, the author preprint of my paper. You know, it's up on Research Square. It's titled, Codified Barriers to Mental Health Care, an Example from New York State. Um, and, and I really didn't address the fact that there's really not good tracking of the outcomes, right? So we know that X number of people per year are reported. We know that that the number of reports that go to the Office of Mental Health, the State Office of Mental Health, are slightly different from the number of reports that find their way to the Department of Criminal Justice Services. Don't know why nobody could answer that, but I think it's probably because some people are reported more than once, maybe. Okay. Um. <clears throat> But we don't know, of all of those reports, how many of them are overturned. Nobody knows that. No one's keeping track of it. Oh, wow. No, I I can't find a data source that tells us that. But I will tell you that mine was overturned.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? And so if mine was a false report, how many others were a false report? So I did find data. Um. Through a Freedom of Information request to the New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services, and I wanted to know how many database searches they conducted by year, um, looking to see whether or not whether or not a person had a handgun permit that were related to this uh, Safe Act reporting. Okay. Right. So database searches specifically related to Safe Act reporting, and they gave me those numbers. And then I asked them of those database searches, how many were, did they then report to the county? Because if they find you have a handgun permit, they report it to whatever county you live in because the county issues the handgun permits in New York State. So, um, So with those two numbers, I could see that only 1% of people get reported back to the county. And what that means, is only 1% of the people that are reported are getting a day in court.
2: So what's happening to the other
1: 99%? They are never told that they're reported. There's, there is no mechanism by which anyone is required to tell them that they are now in a, in a Division of Criminal Justice database as somebody prohibited from firearm ownership. They don't know it unless they go and try to buy a firearm, or this week, if they try to go buy ammunition because New York just changed the rules. Right. Have, to have background checks. know. Um, nobody tells them. Nobody knows it. It just happens. And you're now on this D- Division of Criminal Justice Services database list saying, "You can't own a gun for five years from the date of this report. And then in five years, it magically is supposed to go away. Uh-huh, yeah. So uh, the, assumption, the assumption of this law is that these reports are accurate, which we know they're not, right? Um, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, the assumption is that the reports are accurate, that everybody that's reported is either suicidal and/ or homicidal, um, and the assumption is that within five years, that condition will no longer exist.
2: Uh huh. Now, okay. and, and by the way, I want folks to understand this is separate
0: from the extreme risk protection order, right? This is not—you're not describing New York's red flag law, correct? Uh, this is a an entirely different process, one that has even less due process protections. It sounds like than the uh, the red flag law in New York State.
1: So, yeah, this is not the extreme order of protection law. This this is the New York Safe Act reporting law which is Mental Hygiene Law 9.46. It's different. Um, so 99% of the people are never notified. There's no requirement for notification, and they don't have an opportunity to appeal it. There is no mechanism to appeal it. So if you look at the New York State uh, website, Office of NICS Appeals and Safe Act, there is a prescribed way to appeal a NICS report. There, There is a way to do that. I wouldn't suggest doing it without a lawyer, just from people I've talked to that have tried it. But there is a way to do it. There is no way to appeal a safe act report. There's no mechanism to do that. And actually, when I communicated with that office and asked them, what is the appeal process? All they would say is, call a lawyer. That's it. There's no, oh, this is the form, you you know, step A, you fill out this form, you submit it here. Nothing. There's nothing. So they don't tell you you're in a criminal justice database, and they don't give you a way to appeal it once you find out. However, we know that some unknown percentage of these reports are false. Now, why are they false? Let's get into that a little bit. Okay, so the law itself... Originally had, I believe, four types of reporters. Okay. So it's like psychologists, medical doctors, um, social workers, and registered nurses, I believe. Last summer in 2022, they expanded that to include additional providers, some even less qualified. So now a licensed vocational nurse, you know, sometimes they call them an LVN or an LPN, can now report someone. The problem with all of that. Is not all of these mandated reporters are qualified by their licensure, and you can look this up on the New York State Office of the Professions what people can do under a license. They're not qualified by their licensure to make a medical diagnosis of suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation. Now let that sink in. We're trying to report people who are going to harm themselves or others right that is suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation those two things are medical diagnoses that have icd codes billable icd codes attached to them a bunch of the mandated reporters aren't they're not allowed to make medical diagnoses so they're reporting that this condition exists
2: but they're they're not allowed to diagnose it. Christmas. you know so- the
0: the abuse here, uh, yeah whether whether or not it's intended, but the potential for abuse that you're describing and the abuse that clearly is taking place, um I mean, this is just horrifying, honestly, Sandra. so and I apologize, but uh, we're we're getting a little short on time, and I want to make sure that uh, that we we hit everything that uh, that you want to talk about. Is is this an easy fix? I mean, is this something that the legislature, if they had the will in Albany, could go back and say, OK, we're going to we're going to make these tweaks and, and come up with a system that that you think would be workable? Or is this something that just needs to be scrapped outright uh, because this is this is unfixable?
1: OK, so so here's the thing uh, to, to preface my answer to that. Sure. This law itself has created a massive barrier to mental health care for adults in New York state. Yeah. Okay. So just just for gun owners. So so there's a research study out there that says that 9% of the people in their study are less likely to seek mental health care because the law exists. Okay? If you roll that up to a population level using census data, um using data from the substance abuse and mental health services associate, you know, their government databases. We are looking at, for every one report filed, which is roughly 18,000 a year on average, there are 16 adult gun owners who will not seek care, okay? In, in the meantime, those 18,000 on average reports every year, they're only capturing 2.7% of the target population who have serious thoughts of suicide or homicide. Okay, so it's capturing 2.7% of its target population. It is creating a barrier to care for over 200,000 adult gun owners every year. If you roll it up to the whole population, it's over a million people every year in New York State less likely to seek care because the law exists. So your question was about fixing it. My opinion is the only fix to this is to repeal it. I think that that's the correct fix because there are other laws in place to take care of the problem. This law is unnecessary. It's a feel-good law. It made some politician feel good to pass it because they would get a lot of votes because it made it look like they were doing something. Mm -hmm. There are already laws on the books. You know, if somebody is a danger to themselves, of others, there are holds. They can be put on a hold, right? They can, if somebody's, really having a problem there's involuntary admissions there's voluntary admissions there are laws in place already this law is unnecessary and is causing a problem it's it's undermining public health it's not it's not protecting people
0: yeah i mean it sounds like as you just described you you've got uh, you've got a twofold problem right this is not helping the people who are in actual need of help and it's harming the people who are not in need of help by uh, again making them less likely to seek care Uh, because not every mental health uh, you know mental health is not only acute crises uh, and and that's typically how we talk about this right when someone's a Mm -hmm. danger to themselves or others there are a lot of folks who you know could use just some therapy they could use somebody to talk to they they need to work things out but they're not Uh, suicidal or homicidal, and in in terms of their thoughts or their feelings, those folks still deserve care, right? They, they, you know, those folks like, like you who are stressed out, like me, who is dealing with the the loss of a child, Mm -hmm. those folks could use care, but if they're not going to get it because they're afraid of opening themselves up to, you know, a a bureaucrat somewhere, uh, deciding that they can no longer own a gun, you're right. They're going to stay away. Yeah. have you presented this research to anybody, uh, you know, in the public health arena in New York state? And if so, what what was their reaction? As you said, so, I mean, this is politically incorrect, but this is still important.
1: Right. So this is very important. And and as I said, it's. It, it, it's part of the reason I'm retired. OK, this needs to happen. This. Information needs to be sought and found and shared. Um, I am no longer affiliated with the New York State government as an employee at all, so um, I, I don't have you know that that perspective to to share it within that realm. However, I did post it on LinkedIn, and I do see that there are quite a number of people from New York State Department of Health who have read my post, um, and it's really framed around. Um, n- not so much about the constitutional issues, which we didn't really didn't touch on in this conversation too much, but it's really framed around the barrier to care and the public health act aspect. That this this creates disequity in health, and health equity is a big deal right now. That's like a big you know hot buzz topic in in right. public health, right? It, there is not equity this is causing problems with equity cuz there are segments of the population who won't seek care because this law exists it's mm-hmm. that's a problem um, and barriers to care are a problem so yeah i've i've had um almost 200 i posted on on the 8th on linkedin i've had almost 200 people look at it um it's being shared uh, a large proportion of them are from because you can look at the analytics from the government or from um, New York state department of health. there's there's also a contingency out in Denver, Colorado that's looking at the post too. I'm not quite sure what well, you know how that's going on. but but yeah, there's people looking. but the piece we didn't really talk about cam that that I think needs to be addressed as well is the constitutional violations. We're not no. just talking about Second Amendment, which I know is you're like that that's one of your things, right? But we are talking about First Amendment because this is impacting free speech to your providers. If people are not being honest with their providers and and the paper by Charter et al, where I got the 9 percent speaks to that. They did research on that. We're talking about the Fourth Amendment being violated. We're talking about the Sixth Amendment. We're talking about the 14th Amendment, you know, equal protection under the law. Why did I, as a handgun permit holder, get a day in court when 99 percent of the other people reported didn't? Right. Right. Yeah, that's not equal protection under the law.
0: Absolutely. Um, okay. I, yeah.
1: Why, I, why is it we're not allowed to see the reports? You're, somebody's accusing you of something, and you're not allowed to know who they are. You're not allowed to know what the report says. You're not allowed to, you know, like see the witnesses against you. I believe is how the wording goes. Or you know, hire an attorney to defend yourself against the allegation. You're, you can't do that because you're never allowed to see the report and there's no requirement to tell you about it
0: which of course but we're coming
1: up on time
0: <laughs> well we are coming up on time but you know i was going to say again that secrecy uh also makes it more difficult to challenge this in court right because of 99 of the people who are affected never realize that they're actually barred from owning a farm because of this report they can't file suit uh so you're looking at a very limited pool of potential plaintiffs who, who could actually challenge this legally and you know, I don't want to undercut or uh, downplay the constitutional concerns. You're absolutely right. Um, this is, uh, as I said, I mean, I have problems with the lack of due process in, in you know, "quote unquote" red flag laws. Uh, this is even more abusive uh, in, in terms of you know not providing those protections. Absolutely. So, you know, listen, as you said, we are running short on time, unfortunately. But I, I want to have you back um, at sure. some point in the future here because this is really incredible stuff, and I. I can't thank you enough for sharing your own personal experience with this um, and, and using the trauma that you suffered uh, mm-hmm. to try to you know I- improve the status quo in New York so that other folks don't have to go what you're going through, so that folks who do need help can get it. They don't have to worry about uh, their rights being infringed if they talk to a therapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. This is, again, this is really important. And I'd like to think that even people on the other side of the equation who say, well, I'm not a big fan of the Second Amendment, don't know why anybody want to own a gun, could at least recognize the problems here. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to be a fan of gun ownership or the Second Amendment to understand that that this isn't working the way it was supposed to work. Or if it is working the way it was supposed to work, then there's an even bigger problem. Uh, but thank you, Sandra, for starting to shine a light on this. I know that uh, you are not done yet. Just getting started, right?
1: That's right I have more to do this is this is my retirement project
0: <laughs> well I, I i am I'm sorry that um this is you know fallen into your lap I guess but i'm I'm glad that we've got a a warrior like you who's out there trying to shine a light uh on this issue and again anything we can do to help uh you know get the word out you've got an open invite to come back anytime you want
1: Hey, let me know when you want me back. Um, I'm happy to talk about this to anyone who will listen. We need to share this information and hopefully it will result in change in New York state, but hopefully it will also result in change in other states.
0: Absolutely. Now, one last question before we let you go. How long after you got the the, the judgment from the uh, from the judge, how long did it take for you to get your gun back?
1: Um, I just had to take the piece of paper from the court and drive over to the sheriff's office and they gave it back to me.
0: Okay, well, at least that's that's one b- bit of good news. At least we didn't have to hear about the six month process of you fighting to get your gun back. So I guess that's that, that's 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 one silver line. We can end on a uh, slightly positive note in a, uh, a really terrible situation there in New York State. And again, yeah. Sandra, thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, we will definitely have you back again in the very near future. But thank you so much for coming on the program today.
1: You're welcome, Cam. Keep up the good work.
0: Thank you. You too. I appreciate Sandra joining me on the program and looking forward to uh, having her back again in the future. We're going to be, obviously, uh, continuing to cover what's going on in New York, where you have decades of unconstitutional gun control measures that uh, are being challenged. Everything, you know, we saw the uh, Sullivan Act struck down, thankfully, but uh, the SAFE Act still remains intact uh, for the most part. And, of course, tomorrow, you know, the... um, Provision that was originally part of the SAFE Act and then was reestablished by uh, Kathy Hochul after the New York State police said, yeah, we don't know how to do this. The uh, background checks for ammunition sales, that's supposed to start tomorrow in New York State. We'll be uh, following the uh, launch of the uh, background checks for ammunition coming up at Bearing Arms as well. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story. Our good deed of the day and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a story from the fantastic website CWB Chicago, highlighting the case of a man who robbed a Chicago Transit Authority customer at the Garfield Red Line station about a month after he was sentenced to prison for a robbery at the Garfield Red Line station. That's right. 21 year old Kendall Hunter uh, was uh, allegedly at the station on September the 2nd. When he approached a 26-year-old man and asked him for money, according to the uh, police report, Hunter then pointed a laser at the man, took his property. A uh, criminal complaint identified the property as a White Sox hat. When the victim tried to get his property back, Hunter allegedly punched him in the head and began beating him with a broom that he snatched from a vestibule inside the uh, train station. Victim backed off after receiving cuts to his head, back, ear, and wrist from the broom. Hunter then ran when police arrived, actually went onto the tracks before he... uh, hopped onto the Dan Ryan Expressway, where he ran uh, ran back and forth across multiple lanes. State troopers and Chicago cops eventually took him into custody, according to CWB Chicago, where they allegedly found a, quote, minigun-shaped lighter with a laser attachment in his pants pocket. Um, Yeah. He uh, was taken to a local hospital for unspecified reasons. CWB Chicago reports while he was there, he repeatedly, quote, gratified himself in front of female CPD officers who were standing guard. He's now been charged with robbery, aggravated battery, public indecency, as well as misdemeanor battery. And as uh, CWB Chicago reports, back on July 19th, he had pleaded guilty to unlawful restraint in connection with a robbery back in 2021 at the same Red Line station. Prosecutors dropped the robbery charge in that deal. He uh, went to the Stateville Correctional Center the next day after having his sentence cut in half by law and having time served credits applied. That three year prison sentence turned into a day. In prison, Hunter, by the way, at age 21, already has previous felony convictions for resisting police, causing injury, and aggravated battery in a public place. Both of those felonies occurring back in 2016. Uh, No word on how much time he's facing with this most recent robbery charge, but um, chances are. Chicago police will be running into young Mr. Hunter again at some point in the not-too-distant future. Today's Armed Citizen story, actually an update on uh, yesterday's report of a a teenager in Phoenix who defended himself and his mom when a man tried to break inside their home. Now we're learning more not only about the suspect but about the teen as well. The uh, suspect in this case, uh, 35-year-old Juan Saavedra, accused of being high on methamphetamine when he tried to break into that home in uh, phoenix arizona yeah so according to uh police the, the savedra didn't know the occupants of the uh, home they didn't know him it was about 10 o'clock saturday night they were called out to originally a home burglary police say that savedra was found standing outside a home two houses down with gunshot wounds to his stomach and his right arm court documents uh provide more details woman told officers that she saw savedra on her security camera in front of her home and told him to leave or he'd be shot. The woman then ran inside her house, called the police, told one of her children to lock the door, and then she grabbed a gun to protect herself, her husband, and her five children inside. Documents stated that's when Savedra began banging on the carport door. The woman told the children to move as far away from the area as possible. Savedra broke the glass window pane uh, of the uh, door in the carport area and began to reach inside to open the door. That's when the woman's 13-year-old son grabbed the gun from the mom whose hands were kind of shaking, and he ended up shooting Saavedra, Saavedra taken to the hospital for treatment. During an interview with police, Saavedra reportedly told officers that he'd been smoking meth with a friend for the last two days and was then trying to find his friend. According to court documents, when Saavedra approached the home, he thought he heard his son's voice behind the carport door, despite knowing, even in his uh, intoxicated state, that that was not his house. Uh, He was asked, did you know that, you know, you might, be freaking out the people inside, he allegedly told police, yeah, I mean I was high, obviously. He also reportedly admitted to police that the woman told him to leave the area. Uh and that's why it was uh, you know, I guess acknowledging that uh yeah, she had a right to act uh, as did her son in defense of themselves in their home. Right now, Savetra facing a felony charge of one count of second degree burglary, uh no one in the family facing any charges again for uh, defending themselves with a firearm in this scary incident. Finally, today, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, a Florida man, Travis DuPont, who was able to rescue a man from a burning car. There's a screen capture. You can see that individual being pulled out of that vehicle by Travis DuPont. He said, I'm, I'm like right here talking to the guy, and then I'm reaching in and pulling him out. Just thankful I got him out of there in time. If it was any earlier, I would have missed him. If I was any later, you know, he might not have. Been there. It was about 3.30 Sunday morning. Dupont's driving home from work, and he said he saw a, a flash and heard a pop in the distance. He said, I turned my radio off in my car. And I'm just trying to listen to see if there's any smoke. I'm looking up, and as I'm approaching, I'm looking up at the telephone pole, having to look down. And I see this man's car, and the entire shopping center just smashed in, and I immediately pulled into the parking lot. Tried to wake the driver up to get him out of the vehicle as he called 911, but there were flames that were starting to, you know, come out from under the engine compartment. And he said, that's when I knew I had to step it up a gear and take him out of the car. So I reached over, I clicked the seatbelt, I tried pulling him out, but because the car was so squished, the steering wheel was pushed forward, so his legs were kind of locked down. Uh, DuPont eventually managed to get the driver out. He said when the fire started, that's when I, I like really knew that something had to be done right now. I needed to really take action. Like, There's no messing around. I needed to get this guy out of the car. He said, of course, I was scared. I was more scared that like maybe I'd forgotten somebody else was in the car, that I'd overlooked something. You know, adrenaline is rushing so fast. And uh, just a few moments after he was able to extricate the individual from the car, that vehicle fully engulfed in flames. Uh, DuPont said the car actually exploded about a minute after he carried the uh, driver away. He said it wasn't necessarily like a fire explosion. It was a big boom, like a bomb that went off right in the parking lot. Florida Highway Patrol believes the uh, driver was impaired when he crashed into the uh, storefront there in that shopping complex. Thankfully, again, he is going to be alive and uh, hopefully will recover from his injuries. Because of the quick thinking and the fast action of Travis DuPont, again, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing for a person in need. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company, but I do want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. I'm looking forward to being back with you tomorrow. Who knows what the news will be then, but uh, we are certain to have updates for you out of the Land of Enchantment and beyond don't forget to check out barionarms.com throughout today, we're keeping you up to date on all of the latest second amendment news and information from all across the nation and if you like what you see i'd encourage you to become a vip member or a vip gold member All you have to do go to barionarms.com slash subscribe use the promo code gun rights and you can get a significant savings on your vip or vip gold membership as our way of saying thanks for showing your support we're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else because your support does matter and it truly does make a difference so thank you again enjoy the rest of your 2a tuesday We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe,
2: and be free.